When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You want to fix poverty with a capitalist system using some Islamic loophole, like some Islamic you know, premise, it's not going to work, right? It's not, it's not that simple. So we really need to tear down you know, the assumptions and, and the, the core economic foundations and really rebuild them with an Islamic mindset if we want to really understand how Islam will fix these problems in the world. Zakat is often mischaracterized as merely an act of paying individual arms. In reality, it is a sophisticated system of wealth redistribution and spiritual sacrifice that helps to nurture a true Muslim fraternity. It is customary to pay zakat in Ramadan, as this is when the reward is greatest for all deeds, but also the heightened sense of brotherhood and absence of shaitan's whispers asking us to hold back means that charitable donations flood various causes. But what is zakat? To whom can it be paid? How do we collect zakat? Which organizations can we offer our money to? What if we have debts? These questions and more will be answered by my learned guest today. Dr. Osman Umarji is a director at Yakin Institute. He is a professor in the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine, and has studied at Al-Azhar University. If you like what we are doing, why not consider donating to our podcast? We are looking to produce weekly shows and the occasional documentary pieces. A donation link is in the show notes of this program and on our website. Dr. Usman Umarji, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's an honor to be back. Oh, it's great to have you with us. And uh, your last uh, occasion with us, you spoke about uh, al-maqasid and uh, the impact of the, the broader objectives of the Sharia and how we should view that in the modern context. And I think it was a very illuminating podcast and Alhamdulillah, we had, a, we had some really great feedback from uh, our listeners about that. 
And so maybe that's a good place to start. Where uh, I've invited you onto the show to talk about zakat and, and what it means and, and the impact on our day-to-day -day lives, as well as the impact on our communities and our societies and indeed our countries. So let's start with the objectives of zakat. Uh, what are the uh, objectives that the Sharia has given to this responsibility, this obligation uh, of a Muslim to pay zakat? So the Sharia, as we spoke about in our last podcast, the, the scholars have identified that there were five major highest level objectives that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted human beings to achieve through following the Sharia, which were one of those was a preservation of wealth. And so zakat primarily, what I want to talk about in today's episode, we can unpack is that through, it is the primary act of worship. It is a primary obligation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, that helps to achieve some of this. And so when you think about all the different economic laws of Islam, right? Of course, we have the prohibition of riba. We have prohibition against you know, gambling, right? We have all kinds of other laws, but part of those laws and the biggest act of worship related to the preservation of wealth and the development of wealth of a society is the paying the collecting, the paying, and the distribution of zakah. So this is why the Prophet Muhammad elevated zakah, and Allah did, from simply in uh, a good deed to a pillar of our faith. It is the financial pillar of Islam. And that's why the Prophet Muhammad he said that a sadaqatu burhan, right? that charity is proof of one's faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, I mean, I, one of the things that gets me when we kind of even speak about zakah is that it's such a rare topic to get addressed in the Muslim community because we talk so much about salah. Every year we talk about fasting. And every year during the hajj season, we talk about hajj. But zakah as a pillar, it just seems to get very little attention. So uh, I want to commend you, know, uh, you and, and the podcast for actually raising light on such a neglected pillar of Islam. No, Jazakallah khair. And um, we're talking just before the start of Ramadan. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us life, we will meet this Ramadan once again. And uh, many Muslims tend to reserve Ramadan as a month to pay their zakah. Um, I've always wondered why that is. Is that just simply because it's uh, one gets a higher reward when one pays zakah in Ramadan? Or is there a, a precedence from Islamic history there? Yeah, great question. Uh, as a precedence from Islamic history, uh, I'm actually not well aware of any opinion that says that um, you know, the Prophet Muhammad or the companions were encouraged specifically in Ramadan to, to pay their zakat. Um, although that being said, there's a hadith and there's scholarly opinions that I, I think give support to someone who chooses to do that. And so you have one narration where the Prophet Muhammad he was narrated that he was the most generous of all people. Ibn Abbas said this of all people. And he was even more generous in Ramadan when Angel Jibreel would come to meet with him. And so every night, Jibreel السلام, would come to review the Qur'an with the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, And thus, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, would be more generous than a nourishing wind. So the idea behind this is that through this deep connection with the Qur'an in Ramadan, that this is a, the Qur'an motivates us to be giving. And so Imam Nawawi, in the explanation of, of this, he said that our scholars said that being generous and performing good deeds are highly recommended during Ramadan. And then he said that this month is honored and therefore, good deeds performed in this month are blessed more than they are during any other time of the year. So if one had a choice to say, well, I can pay you know, my zakah in whatever it is in, in, in Sha'ban, or I could pay in Ramadan, right? people are hoping 
for that uh, generosity from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in increasing the reward. And that's why they often give it during the sacred month. Uh, we're going to go into the process of zakah and and uh, how it, uh, how one um, calculates zakah and, and the different uh, aspects of it. But there will be no problem in the sharia if, for example, the end of your year term was in Sha'ban or, or, or in, even in another month, you know, uh, six months prior to Ramadan, there'll be no problem with delaying the payment of zakah until Ramadan. Oh, well, delay is its own topic, and we can get into when, uh, when uh, zakat should be. De- so the general rule of thumb is that we should not delay our payment of zakat. Uh, there are rules of giving it early in times of need, uh, but generally, the, unless you have a very specific reason to delay, sometimes people um, actually give it in disbursements to certain parties that there's a reason behind that. For instance, the party, for instance, will not know how to use that money properly in one lump sum, or there's certain tax rules around them collecting a big lump sum. In that case, it could be dispersed over time. But uh, the point is that people should pick a time that becomes their annual zakah payment. And that is based on the Islamic calendar. So if one decides that they want to do it in Ramadan, every single year they should do it in Ramadan. If someone had decided to do it in Shawwal, every year they should do it in Shawwal. I understand, right? And uh, let's let's uh, try to understand the different verses and hadith related to zakah. So, the famous verse uh, explains zakah and and addresses it as a a way of purification. Uh, can you explain this idea? How does zakah purify one's wealth? So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in the Quran in Surah Tawbah, "Khud min amwalihim sadaqatan tutahhiruhum wa tuzakkihim biha wa salli alaihim." So this is the verse that establishes uh, the obligation of zakat in the Quran, where Allah says, take from their wealth, sadaqah. And in the Quran, oftentimes the word sadaqah refers to zakat. Although colloquially, we use these as two distinct terms, right? Zakat is this technical pillar of Islam, whereas sadaqah is often colloquially used for this general uh, charitable contribution. But Allah describes, he says, take from their wealth, telling the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Charity that purifies them, that it does these two things, there's tathir and it does tazkiyah. So these two terms both imply this notion of purification, cleansing, and then as well as growth and increase. So linguistically, the term zakah means to grow, increase, purify, and cleanse. So if we try to understand when Allah gives us a, a legal term, Right? When Allah gives us a, you know, one of these acts of worship, we, we, there's a, a technical meaning to it, and then there's the linguistic meaning. And they usually are very, very tightly aligned. So if you take salah as an example, right? salah is our, it's, it's fiqh-wise, right? it's our prayer that has these particular um, body movements with particular times and particular things we say. But linguistically, right, salah refers to a connection between the servant and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The zakah, it giving zakah and charity what the idea behind the purity or the growth is that it causes personal and societal growth and it increases personal and societal wealth. It purifies one's heart of stinginess and also purifies and cleans our wealth from any impurities that may have entered into our wealth as we were doing business. And what about the hadith, which uh, refers to zakah as um, it does not lessen your, uh, your money, your wealth, and it doesn't lessen your your risk. How does how do we understand this? Does it mean that 
um, as, as some have said, that if you pay, if you didn't pay, if you withheld your zakah, that money would have been lost anyway. Yeah, this is a heavy topic that gets into qadr. And, you know, we don't want to, uh, you know, as Prophet Muhammad encouraged the Muslims not to argue over the details of qadr, right? This is something from the ghaib. But at a very high level, what we understand is the word, first the word risk, and we have to unpack that word. Uh, it's a very heavy term with so many connotations uh, around it. It implies sustenance. It implies livelihood. And one of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's names is Ar-Razzaq. And as many ayat in the Quran mentioned, many other hadith about it, that Allah's, like risk is written for us. Uh, it is something that Allah has determined. And it is something that, of course, we have to put, just like anything else that Allah has determined in the universe with his qadr, the human being still has to exert his effort to obtain that. Because we don't know what's, the, we, don't, we don't know what's in in Allah al-Mahfuz. We don't know what Allah has determined for any of us. So we just go about the means that Allah has given us. And then we accept that whatever we receive has been written for us. So, but one of the misnomers about risk is that people simply think this refers to money. And it doesn't. So when we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as ar-razzaq, the sustainer, right, the giver of livelihood and the giver of sustenance, that we should always understand that Allah is giving us all of our needs. He's sustaining us with everything we need in life from the social relationships that we require to the, you know, the, the, the peace of the heart that we need uh, to, of course, the livelihood to put a roof over our house. All of these things are from the risk of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then the Prophet Muhammad gave us this hadith that really wanted to get at the paradox of wealth and also kind of the paradox of many different acts that seem counterintuitive kind of at the human level, but they're the truth from the Islamic perspective. So that when the Prophet said, charity does not decrease wealth, he gave this hadith with three different parts. Charity does not decrease wealth. No one forgives another, but that Allah increases his honor. And no one humbles himself for the sake of Allah, but that Allah raises his status. So what the Prophet was getting at here is that these things to us seem that, you know, if you get money, that you lose something, right? And if you humble yourself, you have humiliated yourself, right? That's kind of the notion that people think. And the Prophet is telling us it's actually the opposite because you have to see this from a perspective that is much more broad and vast. So when you give wealth, that how is it actually growing? So we said that zakah means growth literally that it is growing and increasing and purifying in ways that we cannot fully appreciate. The term barakah has to be understood. That what does it mean for Allah to bless something? Yeah, you might have the same dollar in your hand, but one person who has given and one person who hasn't given, the person who's given that dollar that they have in their hand now might go substantially further. It might have more of an impact, right? It might bring that person more joy and satisfaction. And the person who withheld wealth as Allah says in the Quran, do not perceive those that withhold that which we have given to them to be good for them. Actually, it is bad for them. So whereas they seem from a dunyawi perspective to have more, it actually has less value. It actually has uh, less ability to actually provide for that person what he wants with that wealth. How was zakah collected at the time of the Messenger وسلم, and the Khulafa afterwards? Yeah, so interestingly, the idea of zakah itself, the sirah, uh, in the early years of, of Mecca, in the early years of the message, that the Prophet Muhammad constantly encouraged charity. So from the very first surahs that you have in the Quran, right, the idea of taking care of the orphan, taking care of the needy, was being promoted and, and freeing of slaves and taking care of the weak and the destitute was all fundamentally a part of what the Prophet was conveying. However, 
there was absolutely no rules about zakah that were given until after the hijrah in the second year after the migration when the Muslims established a state. And this is important to understand because the Prophet Muhammad was dealing with this with a, with a small community of believers who at that time were weak, who did not have the ability to systematically do something. First, to, I mean, their own wealth was, was, was difficult to accumulate because of the boycott they were having and so on and so forth. But Allah then gave these rules in the second year. But actually, it took another seven years until it was fully implemented in the ninth year of when uh, the Prophet Muhammad actually began to have tax collectors who would go to all the different regions in the peninsula to take uh, the livestock and the agriculture from each of the tribes. So he would send us a companion who would go to a tribe and, and then that companion would collect from the, the livestock. And of course, the, and that's of course uh, at a certain time of the year. And then he'd also go and collect from the agriculture, which was whenever there was a harvest. So that was a typical way that Zakah was collected at his time, وسلم, with tax collectors going to these tribes. And then the Khulafa al-Rashidun, they actually followed the general same principle. And what's important here is that um, giving your zakah on your wealth was not something which was taken out of people's hands. When I say their wealth, it means their dinars and their dirhams. That was something which was given because uh, the state would not go into somebody's account right, to take that money out. It was simply on the possessions that were visible like the trees, right, and the produce, right, and the animals. So that's interesting. So the Prophet ﷺ had tax collectors who would uh, visit uh, different tribes and make an assessment of their wealth? Uh, or was it a, a self-declaration of wealth on behalf of those uh, uh, tribesmen and, and, and adults in, in those tribes? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, honestly, the hadith are not exactly clear on how it was given. Uh, but the general idea was that the person who's going there is in front of the tribe and can see all that's happening. And so the Prophet actually gave us a hadith that gave us some, some rules about it. So um, for instance, we, the, the Prophet told the, the, the companions that not to go and take the best of everything that they have, right? Because that can cause a lot of, of pain to somebody that, okay, I, here I am. And I'm, the best trees are being taken from me, right? The best of the livestock are being taken from me. And so what that gets at is likely that those collectors were aware of the assets Right. But they were the people had some flexibility over what they would give themselves. So it, it wasn't draconian that, you know, exactly. They take a deep account and they investigate. And they say, I want this camel. Right. I want this tree. Right. But people were allowed to say they can give from um, that which they want to from amongst those assets that are all capital. Um, interesting things happen actually early on that, that give us some more light on how this was taken very seriously as a state that Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, the first Khalifa after the Prophet Muhammad passed away, uh, one of his first tasks, that, that, that one of the big issues that happened to him was called Harub al-Ridda, right? The, the wars of apostasy. And part of this was that when those tribes who had come into Islam at the very end of the Prophet's life, almost, you know, they were uh, not compelled, but they found it to be uh, advantageous to come into Islam. When the Prophet died, they decided they no longer wanted to pay zakah. And they were trying to take the verse literally when they said that Allah said in the Quran, take from their wealth, sadaqah. They said this meant only the Prophet Muhammad So we only gave zakah to the Prophet We're not going to give it to anybody after that. So Abu Bakr, here he is now as the head of state. And he sat with the companions and they debated and discussed this issue in detail. That should we let it go? Should we fight? And Abu Bakr was determined to fight anybody into submitting to the authority of the state 
in terms of paying zakah. And he said this statement, he said, I swear by Allah that if they withheld only the reins of a camel, of what they used to give for the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu I would fight them for it. Which tells us how seriously Abu Bakr al-Siddiq and the state took the matter of zakah and the collection of it. That it wasn't like, you know, if you want to give it, give it. You have to give it. And if not, it was actually a capital offense the state was willing to fight. Like I said, it is one of the objectives of Islam to preserve the wealth of a society. And it cannot be preserved if wealth is not transferred from the rich to the poor. That is a fundamental principle of poverty alleviation of the establishment of, of, of harmony in a society. And so what it really gets at this idea is you absolutely have to have a state to properly collect zakah. And again, you think about it from any secular perspective without the IRS in the United States, as an example, right? The, you know, the, the Internal Revenue Service, uh, the people would not pay tax, taxes properly. Who would just pay taxes voluntarily in full? Very few people. And the same thing without a khilafah, right? The people, the Muslims would not pay zakah properly. And, and the history of Islam bears precedent to the consequences if zakah is paid properly, which we can get into maybe later in the episode. That's great. So you've described uh, the society at the time of uh, Medina, the time of the Prophet and, and after him as a as a state which collected zakah as a central state activity, and it hired zakah collectors or tax collectors to go around uh, to collect this and to potentially assess uh, the uh, the the wealth of of the different tribes. So would you regard zakah to be a form of taxation? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question because it, I think a lot of this goes back to what you define as a tax. Um, if, if you were just to take it from a, like a, a secular perspective, they would say it's not a tax because it is not something which is um, like, in the, like in the Western setting today, you don't exactly, you don't force anyone to pay their zakat, right? So in, in, in the modern world, you would say that without, in the absence of a state, right, zakat is not going to operate as a tax. But traditionally, it was understood to be a tax. It is a tax on one's wealth. And that's why the state could enforce its collection. Um, it's interesting when you think about it as a tax, because when you think about it as a tax that a state collects, the state uses a tax for multiple purposes. And that is exactly what you find at the time of the Prophet Muhammad and the future generations, is that it was used very specifically for certain needs of, its, of, of, of the population. Uh, and of course, after the needs of the poor were taken care of, it would be used for things like building roads, right? It could be used for all kinds of other projects, but only uh, very, very importantly, I want to make this clear, only after the primary objectives of alleviating poverty were addressed, would then zakat be used as this general form of uh, improving society. Right. So you mean healthcare or education or, or other such uh, public act? Okay. Exactly. Um, now, can you walk us through uh, who is eligible for the payment of zakah? So what is the threshold, which I understand to be nisab? What is the threshold and how is it calculated? Yeah, so the word nisab in the, uh, so there's a few terms that we'll have to understand. So nisab hmm. is one, we'll get to haul, right? And those two we'll start with, which will then let us understand. If you understand the nisab and the haul, then you'll start to understand who can get zakah and who has to pay it. So the nisab, literally in the Arabic language, it, it means a threshold. And the term was, was used linguistically in a, uh, the, you know, this, this nasaba, you know, to refer to even like the pedestal upon which like a, a bride and a groom are, 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 are on their wedding, right? They're on this pedestal that, that is elevated off the ground. So the nasab is this threshold of wealth 
that must be owned before zakah becomes obligated on any particular asset. And what I want to be clear about is that there's different thresholds for different types of wealth assets. So wealth, agriculture, uh, and livestock each have their own nisab. And then you get to the idea of the hawl. So only one part of the equation is how much. The other part of this equation is how long. And so the idea of a hawl, hawl again refers to the, the, the period of time, which in this case is a lunar calendar, one lunar year, uh, that one has to hold that particular asset for it to be zakatable. And so some items have the condition of the passage of a lunar year, where others do not. So for instance, your, your, your cash money, that requires the passage of a year, but your agriculture does not. The agriculture is simply paid at the time of harvest, whenever that time of harvest is, and it could be multiple times in the year. Right. Okay. So you've got the nisab, which is uh, the fresh hold, and you've got the hold, which is the duration of time one needs to hold that wealth for, and let's say the equivalent of that's, that's one lunar year. Um, let, let's talk about the, the nisab. How is the nisab calculated? What is the, what is the fresh hold in, in today's money? Yeah, great. So the, the nisab um, was, at the time of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was stipulated in terms of the amount of gold. Um, or silver. And that number was, it was about 85 grams, right, is the, is the closest calculation we can come up with for gold, and about 592 grams for silver. Uh, today, because the way in which gold and silver have been valued, that silver has become very, uh, the, the, the ratio of the value of silver relative to gold is so low, that the majority of scholars don't really consider the silver nisab to be very valid anymore because the number comes out to like 400, about 400 to $500 around there, depending, of course, the fluctuation. So the majority of scholars say we'll use the gold standard because it is much more robust over time. And so you calculate at whatever point in time um, 85 grams of gold is worth. And it's usually hovering over the last 10 years. Uh, it's been around thirty-five to forty-five hundred dollars. You can say almost four thousand U.S. dollars. So, what anyone should do is they should just go to the you know any at any point in time, go into uh, the website and just look up the price of gold, and then they're able to know that hey, do I have that threshold? Which you know, like I said, if it's four thousand dollars, then if you have four thousand dollars for an entire calendar lunar calendar year, then you have met the nisab and you have met the haul. I have, imagine I have a thousand dollars. Zakat is not uh, payable for, for my wealth at that moment in time. But as soon as I reach the, the Nisab, so the 4,000, for argument's sake, $4,000, uh, a year later, if I still have that money, uh, I must pay Zakat on, on that wealth. That's, that is what Islam would regard as surplus wealth. What if uh, during that year, my uh, my my wealth dipped and it went under four thousand dollars and then and rose above four thousand dollars soon after. Does it reset? Does the nisab the whole reset uh, from the point at which it uh, goes above that threshold? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, this is a point of difference amongst the scholars. Uh, from the madhahib, there was uh, some opinions that said that um, any time it dropped below, then one could reset it once it went above. Um, but others said that uh, you should actually just take the entire calendar. So if it, you started at a certain date, so let's just say that it just so happens that on, you know, the day of my, uh, that I've set for my zakah, I'm at threshold. So today I have, let's say $4,000 and I'm, and, and I'm at my point. 
where I say, okay, this is the time that I typically pay zakat. So if I paid today, now my year is continuing on. Six months later, I dropped to 3000 because I bought a car or I did something. And then a month after that, it goes up to 10000 because I got my tax refund or something like that. All I care about is that by the end of the, the haul, I'm back to being above the nisab. And Allahu Alam, that is the preferred opinion I hold. I think that's the strongest opinion. And it's the most, uh, because of the way that our economies work with the way that money comes in and out of our accounts, it seems to be the most uh, straightforward way of calculating. But it is a valid opinion if someone was to follow the opinion that they can recalculate every time it dropped below. Who is zakat paid to? We understand there are eight categories in the Quran, but I want to understand these categories a little further. Um, the most obvious one uh, category would be the poor, uh, but also you have the second category of the needy. I mean, who would be defined as the needy and how does that separate from the poor? Yeah, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala outlines in the Quran the, the eight categories. So he says, إِنَّمَا صَدَقَاتُ لِلْفُقَرَاءُ وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَالْعَامِلِينَ عَلَيْهَا وَالْمُؤَلَّفَةِ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَفِالرِّقَابُ وَالْغَارِمِينَ وَفِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ so those are the eight categories that Allah mentions. Allah says that indeed the sadaqat, indeed the zakah is only for the fuqara. Who in, again, this difference of opinion between what the fuqara and the masakin are. Uh, some of the scholars mentioned that the fuqara were those who were in the highest state of faqr, right? Or of poverty. They had almost nothing. And so this is why they say that this was mentioned first because the biggest priority for zakah should go to those who literally are destitute without any wealth. The second category was masakin, the miskin, the one who is in need. He's poor, but not broke. So he might have a house that he lives in, but he has no food to put on the table. Right? And so that's a, a lower level of need, but still that qualifies. Other ulama mentioned those two are essentially synonymous. Uh, then we have aleha, those who collect it. And again, this is the state employment of collecting it. And then you have those whose hearts are inclined or are to be inclined. And that's a, a whole topic we can speak about. Uh, and those um, who are captives, you know, to free the captives. And those who are in debt. And those uh, who are going out in the sake of Allah, which traditionally meant jihad. And, and the one who's a traveler, meaning someone who's traveling and who's lost his wealth. And even though he has wealth back home, he, this moment in time, he needs wealth because either he's been robbed, he lost his wallet, and he needs that money. So those are the eight categories. Um, and so each of these has rules around who qualifies within it and, and who doesn't qualify. So let's look at the zakat collectors first. Um, okay. You've just said that uh, it's uh, this category is uh, those who have been uh, who have been uh, appointed by the. Uh, by the state to collect the zakat. So those people at the time of the Prophet والسلام, in the Khulafa Rashidin, uh, who went around surveying and assessing the crops and, and the wealth, these people would would get a, a portion of the zakat as a as a wage, I, I suppose, for uh, for their work. Um, can we extend that to today's time where we don't have a caliphate, we don't have uh, a you know, a, a, an Islamic government uh, that appoints uh, the zakat collectors, but we have poverty and probably have immense poverty. And there are Islamic groups and, and charity groups that are set up uh, with the express aim of alleviating that poverty. And they do some great work. Uh, can we 
pay some of our zakat to these groups or to the collectors or to the uh, to the volunteers who who uh, spend time uh, to to dispose of that zakat. Yeah, that's such a it's 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 a heavy heavy question in debate. And like you mentioned, it's it's an it's impossible to fully resolve this issue in the absence of a state. So this is where just some of those problems that the Muslim Ummah will have until we have, uh, you know, until we have our own state. And unless, and in the absence of that state, it's left to the, I don't say the vices of people, but to the good intentions that may often be uh, not fully in line with, with the legal code that people try to establish. So let's unpack this a bit. So the idea behind someone who works to collect zakah is the idea that somebody is literally going out and you're getting into some mode of transportation. You're going to a farm somewhere, right? You're going to collect that agriculture and that produce and those and the livestock, and you have to transport those. So that is what was traditionally done in terms of collecting. People's wealth itself, the, the dollars in their accounts, those were given on their own accord. So in, in today's context, where it seems as if, especially in, in Western settings, we don't, majority of zakat is collected through wealth it's not, or through money. It's not collected through agriculture and produce. And that's a separate problem because we do have many wealthy Muslim farmers um, who I don't think are paying zakat because, again, neither do they know how, nor is anyone collecting it. Uh, so the big question comes up now is that, okay, so imagine, let's take myself. So I'm very passionate about zakat. I've been you know, studying zakat lecturing about zakah and investigating the topics for well over a decade. So I say, you know what? I want to collect zakah so I can give it to people properly. And I says, you know, why don't you give me your zakah? And you said, okay, here, Osman, here is my zakah. Here's, here's X amount of money. And I said, okay, now I'm going to take 10% off the top of this for myself. That doesn't sit well, I think, with many, many people because I have volunteered that I want to take this money from the wealthy and distribute it to those who are not wealthy. So at the core of this is that if somebody voluntarily decides that I want to collect money from the poor and transfer it to the rich, to assign themselves a salary is a very tricky issue. One is because in this case, are you acting like a wakil, right? Are you acting like someone who's simply going to um, transfer that wealth over? So if I told you, for instance, that I know poor people, give me your zakat and I'll give it to the poor people. I'm simply telling you that I'm the conduit by which I'm going to get that money from you to the poor. I'm not in some sort of an authoritative sense here. I'm not an entity, right, that is saying because of the overhead which I run that I'm going to take it. So I think this is the dilemma we have is that number one is there's not good rules around this. So the transparency is a problem that people don't often talk about. Uh, Second of all, it's... uh, if people are not going out to actually do any of this work and to collect it from the people, rather just set up a website or something else, that I think is a little bit trickier to justify having a high overhead. So I don't want to give an emphatic answer. I just think that it's very, I recommend people give zakat to organizations that pr- promise 100% goes to the needy. And so what those organizations should do is use the general sadaqah that they raise to pay all of their overhead. That's the ideal recommendation. Of course, there may be circumstances um, where they may not be possible. And if that's the case, very good bookkeeping, very clear transparency to the ummah as to how this money is being used is absolutely essential because this is an amana and it's a trust from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the UK, we have um, uh, charity organizations that collect zakat. And um, 
most of them, uh, you know, as as you described there, they they don't use the zakar money for um for overheads uh, for the distribution purposes. However, the government has a scheme where they will give you a ten percent tax reduction if you put money pay money in charity. And so, on top of say, if I give five hundred pounds to a charity, ten percent of that uh, will be. Uh, added by the government and will be taken from my account. My intention is to pay the five hundred, not the fifty pound on top, which um, uh, which will go to uh, the charity organisation. Now, these organisations will use that additional sum uh, for their overheads. Is that is that acceptable in in your eyes? So the the ten percent is used for the overhead. Ten percent, exactly. Um, if I'm understanding correctly, as long as that ten percent is not your own zakah and it's yes. coming from some other entity, then there's no problem using that for overhead. Right. Okay. Yeah, we don't have that in the US. That's very interesting. No, it is. It is. And, and actually, a lot of the charities run off just that, uh, that tech, tax exemption. It's a way by which the government, it was introduced a, a decade back, mm. and it's a way by which they encourage charitable uh, spending. Now, what about uh, the, the category that you mentioned? Um, the uh, those whose hearts yet to be have yet to be reconciled with Islam. Uh, wh- what is that? Who 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 is that referring to? Yeah, that's uh, it's referring to a number of people. And the way the Prophet Muhammad had used this uh, was when the state was new and the state was still hadn't established its authority in the world. Right, it was trying to fight for its life. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad would use some of that zakah to pay to the heads of those tribes that were either anti-Islam or who were kind of neutral towards Islam to win them over. So by the Prophet Muhammad has been promising this to certain groups of people, right, that those groups would now either become pro-Islam or at least reduce their animosity towards Islam. So that usage at that time allowed the state to stabilize itself and eventually to thrive and to become a world power by which once that occurred, Umar ibn al-Khattab, he actually said, we don't do this anymore. So he actually said that we are not going to pay other tribes and other people because we only did this at a time of weakness to establish ourselves, and now we don't. Now, that being said, I think what's interesting about this, so the, the madahib would often, you know, of course, when they were established, right, the state was very strong, right? For the most part, you know, Islam was a power. Uh, they generally followed that rule that they would not, not just give it to people whose hearts were to be inclined. I think today it becomes tricky again because number one is Islam is incredibly weak. So people's hearts are in need of being turned towards Islam, but we also don't have a state. So this can be a very tricky situation where someone can abuse this. And so I see these circumstances where people want to give exorbitant sums sums of money to politicians, you know, in order to to win over their hearts. And I think this is a a very uh, contentious issue that may not be, uh, you know, (laughs) Number one is that there's no clear indicator this is actually going to have any effect, right? And, and number two, it's operating outside of any sort of like a, of a governmental conflict. You know, there's no confines of this, right? Who is determining, you know, where the maslaha is, right? It's just random people, you know, who often may have no idea what's actually in the benefit of the ummah. But people today think about this in other ways that, for instance, let's say you have new converts and those people who convert to Islam know that by me converting, I will lose, for instance, parental support. Right? And they fear for you know, their financial well-being. So there's opinions that say in these circumstances that it could be used for these people who are on the verge of converting, but who are hesitating to convert or fresh converts might, again, who have lost access to wealth. 
So I, I think that we don't need to shut it down completely and we have to open it up like some people want to do. And, and you said that there are uh, some Muslims who use Zakar for campaign funding to try to uh, try to uh, bring the political parties and politicians uh, towards Burma. Is that really, does that really happen? I mean, I've, I've never heard uh, that happening. Does that happen in the States? Sadly, it happens. Yes, it happens to you really? in the United States, yeah. So, so money will be given to the Democrats or, or to the Republicans from Zakar, from Zakar money uh, to try to reconcile them um, towards Islam. Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, right. And, and let's talk about Fisa Bilillah in the way of Allah. So um, this, you said, traditionally was understood to be uh, money that's given to, uh, to fighters, to, to those who are involved in, in jihad Fisa Bilillah. Now, of course, the word Fisabilillah today we use colloquially, at least in, in a very broad context. Um, are we able to broaden that category to, uh, I don't know, anyone who's working, a dawah organization who's doing some very good work uh, trying to bring the youth to the Quran or an Islamic society or an MSA that's in need of money uh, to propagate uh, the deen? Can we or a university even that uh, that specialises in Islamic studies, can we pay our zakah to those uh, to those institutions? Yeah, so let's let's take this term and understand it, and then we can go through what folks have said. Uh, you know, and I say folks colloquially, like what just general people say, and what scholars have said. So fi sabilillah, like literally, right? The word fi sabilillah means in the cause or in the cause of Allah which was traditionally understood to mean in um, military campaigns. So to fund weapons, to fund fighters, right? To fund whatever is needed for the state to protect itself. That was the idea behind it. Uh, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he actually said that uh, Hajj is also called a sabil, uh, sabilillah. So he actually allowed it to be used for the payment and, and uh, of, of people getting to perform Hajj. So the majority of scholars, I'd say the vast, vast majority, limited it to things that had to do with physically protecting the ummah, as well as the minority said it could be used for these hajj purposes. A very, very small minority said that there was some wiggle room to use this for other good causes, uh, because linguistically, was not a restrictive term. Now, what's happened today, in the absence of the state, again, and in the Western context, where again, Islam is weak, uh, is that a lot of scholars have come out, I should say a lot. Some scholars have come out with the opinion that Sabilillah should be re-understood. It still means jihad, but it doesn't mean only physical jihad. So there's an intellectual jihad that, that is happening in the world today. So some of those scholars who are very reputable, respected scholars have said that we need to widen it a bit. So we should use this for the sake of intellectually defending Islam from the attacks that it's been uh, exposed to um, in order to preserve the iman of people and, of course, to spread you know, the, uh, Islam to others. So that's one kind of category of where it's been expanded. Now, and even that is debated amongst the scholars. Not everyone is on board with that. Uh, and the precedent, they say, is that, of course, protecting the hearts of Muslims, protecting their faith has always been a priority. But historically, other means were used to accomplish that. So there was the waqf system of endowments people had, and there was general sadaqat. And so that would be used for madaris and for schools and for the types of, 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 of intellectual means that were needed to serve the Muslims. Now, we'll leave this for a minute and we'll say, so what has happened now? Well, people have taken this term now and said, well, if the door is opened a bit for, let's say, 
you know, good things, you know, like uh, intellectual jihad. Well, everything we're doing can be, you know, fisa means good things that we do. So we should be able to use it for, you know, MSA programs, and we should be able to use it for, um, you know, opening up an Islamic school for, for anybody. And we should be able to use it for anything that is a noble cause. And this is where I worry, again, that the masses, masses have taken this concept and actually destroyed it. Zakah becomes meaningless when it can be used however anybody wants to use it. I mean, the whole point is that it is a technical form of paying money from the wealthy that is supposed to be primarily given to the poor. And the Prophet said in the hadith, when he sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Yemen, he says, take from the, their rich and give it to their poor. So once zakah becomes a tool that is being used by the upper middle class to fund their projects, which are they're very noble projects, the building of masajid, the building of schools, the building of Islamic centers, um, to, you know, to do da'wah all over the place. But these are not, there's no precedent that this is how zakah was used historically. And my fear is that because Western Muslims see that there's less money available in the sadaqah pool, that they want to tap into the larger zakah pool. But my concern is that this is now transferring wealth from those who truly need it to those who are absolutely not. It's not, it's not their right to use it. So let's say, give this example. So we want to have an Islamic school in our neighborhood and Islamic schools in Western settings generally, right? You know, there's a high fee to operating them that, and they often serve a certain class of Muslims as well, that if zakat is being used to fund projects for the middle class and the upper middle class, it's almost like you're paying zakat to yourself or, or for the masjid. I want to build a masjid in my community and I use my zakat to build the masjid. Well, I'm the beneficiary of it. So one of the rules of zakat is not to be the beneficiary, the direct beneficiary. You can't pay zakat to yourself. And so when I give zakat to things that I benefit from first and foremost, that is a violation of that rule. So, I mean, to summarize all of this, if people were to take fisa bilillah as being this open category, then Allah would never have had to say, Zakat is for the poor and the needy, right? And the collectors and those hearts who are to be inclined and the, and the prisoners and the indebtor. Allah should have just said, And the issue would have been resolved. So it goes back to the usul here, is that when Allah says something, is every word in the Quran have meaning? And does Allah put superfluous statements in the Quran that really have no value because he could have just replaced it with one word? And these are the type of things people have to think about. And I really think that we have to uh, tighten this up without shutting the door to it. But again, it's about transparency and scholarship. Define what you mean, put the conditions around what you mean, and put those. And once it's been codified in this way, then perhaps we can consider that conversation. But just this open door policy of zakat can be used anywhere, anytime by anybody. This is an abuse that I believe is very, very dangerous and, and unlawful. Okay, that's uh, that's a very, very interesting. And um, I, you've talked about zakah uh, has to be paid on unspent wealth uh, that reaches the whole, that reaches the duration uh, of a year. But what about uh, those who live a very luxurious living? So say if I had a mansion here in London, and, and the pretty, you know, London is, is one of the most expensive cities in the world. Uh, but I, you know, I didn't need it. Uh, it's not uh, for, uh, for uh, I haven't got a large family to, 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 to need a mansion, but I just wanted a mansion. Uh, would that uh, property be exempt from zakah? 
Yeah. So generally anything that you personally own and use your house and your cars, your clothes, none of those are um, zakatable. And this is whether or not it is a luxury item or it's not. So I buy a modest home. I don't pay zakat. I buy a mansion. I don't have to pay zakat on it. I buy a luxury car. I don't pay zakat on it. But this gets into the issue of excess and it gets into the issue of through me living a luxurious life, that am I no longer in a position to give any money to those who are in need? And if this is the case, then one becomes extremely blameworthy right, in the eyes of the law. And the Prophet Muhammad, when he said this, you know, we have so many hadith about, he said, eat, drink, spend, and dress without extravagance or arrogance. So we've been given the license to spend our wealth in ways that satisfy our needs and some of our wants in a, mod- in a, in a modest, moderate way. Once it exceeds the norms of moderation, and it goes into the ex- level of extravagance that but we now drop below the nasab and we're never reaching the haud. Then one becomes blameworthy in the eyes of the lawgiver, because this is a form of what Allah says in the Quran, right? We talked about blaming those right, who withhold giving their wealth. That wealth is not, they, they're not, it's not they don't have wealth to give. They actually have a tremendous amount of wealth to give. They've just chosen to just burn it on all these items to bring them this temporary satisfaction and joy. So it's, they're not zakatable but they're still sinful and blameworthy for that. Right. So by blameworthy, you do mean sinful. So for example, if I bought 30 racing cars, one for every day of the week, and um, uh, as a result, at the end of the year, my, uh, my nisab had not met uh, the, the requisite uh, threshold. And so I didn't pay zakah on, on those funds. Uh, your argument would be that, that's extravagance and um if there was a state you know the state would intervene uh but in the absence of a state uh we are in sin uh for doing that uh, well i wouldn't say the state would intervene the state probably would not intervene huh. because some of these spiritual sins are 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 not often the state does not get involved with so um because the person technically made a valid transaction which was to buy the car or to buy the luxury home uh it's it's techni- it's legally valid right but just because something is legally valid does not mean that one will not be asked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about that. So we know that we'll be asked on the day of judgment what we did with our health and our wealth and all the other blessings we've been given. So just because we did not do something that was uh, punishable in the dunya doesn't mean that Allah would not hold us a task for that in the akhirah. What about, okay, imagine, you know, that I gave two very extreme examples, but, you know, you have a lot of wealthy Muslims who... Uh, who who want to uh, buy luxury goods and, and they want to live very comfortable lives, but yet they do pay uh, money in zakah and it's it's um, they they do they do the two right. So they uh, uh, they earn money, they spend money, but also they put money in zakah. I think there is a an understanding in the Muslim community that extravagance is wrong. Would it be wrong if you were extravagant, yet you paid your dues? Would that be a problem from the Sharia? Well, there, we'll differentiate again between what's legally problematic versus what's spiritually problematic. So in this case, somebody is a billionaire or let's say a multimillionaire, and they're living the life of a millionaire by eating the ways they eat and dressing and buying the homes, and buying the cars, taking the vacations. But they have still so much excess money that they're giving that excess money to the poor in, in, in a very generous way. So you, one, one would say that this is completely valid and acceptable to do. It is legally valid. Now, spiritually, the question is, where does one want to be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? It's valid. It's halal completely. 
But the more, and we see the precedent from the Sunnah, the Prophet Muhammad and the companions, this desire to constantly give as much as possible and trying not to you know, optimize our own personal usage, which is why, you know, you see a hadith after a hadith after after hadith where the Prophet would keep saying to the companions and, and Aisha that, you know, that famous hadith where Aisha, the Prophet heard that Aisha had slaughtered an animal and he goes home and says, Aisha, well, what happened to the animal? And she says that um, I gave all of it away except for the shoulder, right? And, and he said that everything remains except for the shoulder. This, the Prophet was trying to reframe how the Muslims think about wealth. And the Prophet said another hadith, he, he asked the companions, he said that, um, do any of you love your, I mean, do you love your wealth more or the wealth of your heirs, right? And they said, yeah, of course we love our wealth. So he says that your wealth is what you give, right? What you give for the sake of Allah is your wealth because you will hold that for eternity. And whatever else you spend, that's gone. And whatever you leave behind and you die goes to your heirs. So you don't, you know, you're not the direct beneficiary of that. So the whole notion from the psychology of wealth in Islam is that we're always in this mindset of how do we optimize how much we can transfer to the world around us? Because we're planting a seed everywhere that is going to grow and grow and grow both in this life and the next life. So in your example, it is valid and permissible to live a comfortable life as long as one is giving their fair share to all those deserving parties. And it, to, to throw another example out, imagine somebody saved millions of dollars and did, lived a frugal life, frugal completely, but they did not give any of that wealth and they died and passed all of that down to their heirs. That also is something which is probably not the best way to use their wealth. So there is the optimal and, the, and you know, Islam allows it variability and those who want to elevate towards Allah. Uh, and then of course, the bare minimum, which is at least paying your zakah and giving, that, uh, and giving the sadaqah that's necessary. Now, my understanding is that we pay zakah on our merchandise. If we have a business and we've got uh, products that we haven't sold, uh, this is zakatable. Now, do we pay zakah on the sale value of this merchandise? So the, the, the possible uh, money and profit we gain from the sale of this merchandise, or do we pay zakah on its actual cost of production at that moment in time, the cost of production before sale? Yeah, so if it's an item which is um, already been completely uh, designed, put together, and it's and it's on the market essentially, like clothing uh, or something else, then the market value is typically considered. There's some differences of opinion, but the general opinion is that the market value is what one would pay on. If it is in the raw material still, right, then then it's something which you know you, you only pay on the raw material, so it has not yet been con- con- uh, has not yet been converted into the actual asset um, that you're trying to sell. Good. And, and apart from Nisab, uh, what other issues or personal circumstances make you ineligible for Zakat? Um, the major one that we talk about is debt, because what will the, the, the whole calculus of one's net worth in Islam is their total assets right, versus their liabilities in this case. So if somebody has $4,000 in their account and they've met the Nisab and they've met the Hawl, but they owe somebody, for instance, uh, $2,000. And that debt is due, like let's say at a very short period of time, within a year is, is one way to think about it. Then that person's short-term liability actually makes them no longer having uh, the full nisab for the year because there's a liability there. So that's the only con- ge- the general um, consideration to take into account of when, when, when one might not have uh, the, the full scope of wealth to give zakah. But we want to differentiate between two things because oftentimes in the Western world, and actually probably now in the East as well, 
the majority of people live in under uh, some form of debt. And so those debts can be in terms of mortgages, they can be in terms of car payments, they can be in terms of student loans and all kinds of other debts. We wanna be really careful to not let people think that if I have a mortgage, even though I make a lot of money and I saved a lot of money because the mortgage is so high that I don't owe anything, that I can just subtract the entire sum of the mortgage and I'm never gonna have been a sob at that point. Uh, we're talking about short-term versus long-term debts. So a long-term debt is anything which is beyond a year. Uh, if it's less than a year and you owe somebody money, then that, that can be subtracted in its full value. So if I owed you, you know, a, a $10,000 and it's due soon, I can subtract that from my total assets. But if it's a mortgage payment, a car payment, a student loan, uh, the general opinion uh, is to only subtract like, the upcoming payment. So if I said, oh, well, I got to pay my mortgage and it's $3,000 this month, or I have to pay my student loan payment, it's you know $1,000 for this quarter, whatever it is that I owe immediately, that's what I could subtract from my total assets. Right. Okay. And, and so if we've agreed to pay back in installments, uh, it's really just that short-term liability that impacts on your zakat, not the long-term final payment. Yes. Okay, great. And what if we loan money to others and, um, and they're going to pay us back, say, over 10 years uh, by installments? Do we, is just the installment amount that you're, you're due in, in, in the short term, is that zakatable? Is the total sum zakatable? Yeah, there's, that's a great, really good question. And there actually are multiple opinions on this. So some of the scholars say that if that money you have given is, um, you expect it back, there's a high likelihood you're going to get that back. And you are operating under the premise that you're going to get that back. So the types of financial decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis, the investments that you make are in your mind, you're saying that money is a part of my wealth then you should go ahead and you should pay zakat on that because it's essentially, even though it's not in your hands now, you're acting as if it is in your hands. If the wealth is something which is gone for a long period of time and you're unable to actually use your wealth in a way that would incorporate that value, then there's scholars who say that you could actually subtract that. Uh, I, I, I personally think that if, if one, and I, and I like that opinion, that if you believe that you have access to that wealth, if you could ever get a claim on that wealth, and if it's not influencing your day-to-day affairs, um, then you should add that into your total assets. Right. So if I have an amount of money, say, I don't know, a hundred thousand pounds and um, uh, I loaned out that money to someone and um, I'm expecting that money back within uh, 10 years, uh, your argument is that, although there's differences, your argument is that we would pay the Sakar on the full hundred thousand pounds uh, each and every year or just for one year um uh, of of uh, making that making that loan yeah so well yeah it would be every single year if if we take this opinion because it is that that would still be considered your 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 total wealth that you've loaned out i, I want to be make a clear distinction if someone is loaning that nia is very important in anything which we do in islam right one's intention and if one is loaning out money to somebody that even they need, right? Like many times people are in general need, but their brother or sister has requested something. And so they're willing to give up their own need for their brother or sister's sake. Right? In this case, you do not pay zakat on it because you need that money yourself. And, and that is you know, affecting your quality of life. But in this case, if you said, for instance, 100,000 pounds, I assume if someone donating 100,000 pounds to somebody, they have an excess amount of wealth. And we don't, and so if the NIA, and so, you know, people can have an intention of, I actually want to loan out my money so that I'm not liable to pay any zakat on it, right? So people can find all kinds of loopholes. That becomes extremely blameworthy 
right? That I'm looking for a way to, to, to evade zakah, right? But again, if it's being done out of the goodness of one's heart and that actually is causing them an impact, right? Then one could consider uh, you know, deducting that from their liabilities because they're unable to take full advantage of it. Uh, and what about retirement accounts where uh, a person may not be using the money now, but they've created a nest egg uh, for future purposes? Do we pay zakah on uh, retirement accounts? Yeah, so retirement accounts are a really tricky thing, uh, especially, I can only speak to the American context, because there are so many different types of retirement accounts. Uh, and even if you just think about our accounts in general, whether there's general savings, checkings, and then all the various retirement accounts, which we can see, I will, I'll break them into just a couple of buckets, just to be easy, um, for at least the American audience. So the American side, we have what's called um, a 401k. And we have what's called, when we have a pension, which I think is also um, in Europe. And then we also have what's called an IRA. So to break these three apart, with a pension plan, where one has absolutely no access to that money at any time, they're not making voluntary contributions, there's mandatory contributions, and they cannot ever have access to a dollar of that until they retire. In that case, there's no zakat that's due until one begins receiving that retirement income for their pension. And then they would simply pay on whatever their, you know, their, their income is from that pension. But in the U.S., they have tried over the last few decades to eliminate the pension in order to absolve the government or the corporation of, of paying for someone's retirement. And they introduce what's called uh, the 401k. And that's the, the tax code. It's called tax code 401 clause K, which was where employers would give incentives to the employee to save. So if the employee would save, as an example, $5,000 a year, the corporation would say we'd match up to a certain amount. Let's say it's $5,000 a year. So now the person says, I'll save $5,000. And then the employer says, I'll give you $5,000. And now they have $10,000 they saved that year. Now, the advantage is that the $5,000 that you've paid is tax-free. And then, of course, the $5,000 that the company has matched is also tax-free. So this is offered to people who are in corporations that are usually well-to-do, right? They're not offered at, you know, small mom and pop stores and not offered typically in nonprofits. So it's a luxury vehicle of saving for one's retirement. Uh, there's different opinions I've been put out there. And, and I really am concerned about how Muslims save in the West and the implications of paying on your retirement or not paying on it. For many Muslims, what they do is they max out their 401k. So they take the maximum contribution that they could give and they save that. And then their employer matches that, which then means they have actually often very little surplus money in a checking or a savings account. So I deal with this regularly where people say, I have saved over years, hundreds of thousands, rather millions of dollars in my 401k because it appreciates because that money is invested into stocks and mutual funds and all kinds of other um, investment vehicles. And they say, I have almost nothing that's liquid. And so my opinion and the opinion of many other scholars in the West uh, is that you need to pay on the full amount of your 401k. And the reason why is that you have chosen to put your money into an account that has these limitations. So the 401k tells you that if you put money into it, that you cannot withdraw until your certain age, typically around 65, without a penalty. And that penalty is 10% plus you're taxed on it. But my argument is that you're choosing to put money into an account with restrictions, and then that money is growing. And so in zakat, one of the rules in the, in the books of fiqh is that if the money that's liable to growth is also liable to zakat, and this money is liable to growth, every year it is appreciating. 
And the, the other concern is that if Muslims in the West withhold their zakah, uh, their 401k from zakah, the majority of Muslim wealth will not be zakatable. And essentially, it is telling the poor that I don't give you any money until I'm 65 years old. So I'm making money from 25 to 65, and you have no access to this until I retire. And then even if you do pay at that point, it becomes very difficult because paying on a massive lump sum of millions of dollars is very difficult on the nafs and very pricey. So I believe that Muslims should pay on their 401k. There's some opinions that say you can subtract a portion of that, possibly the the tax or the penalty. And there's a lot of opinions on there. I don't want to go into it. I personally believe the more you can pay on it, the better. And if you need to take out some small percentage that you'd be penalized for, that is permissible, but not the ideal. Wallahu alam. And is zakah uh, only liable for an adult? So say if a child had money that they inherited or money from their parents, would they have to pay zakah on that money? Yeah, so this is, the, this is also a difference of opinion amongst the ulama. The Hanafi school of thought says that um, only uh, people who have reached the age of puberty and above would pay uh, anyone who's essentially an adult in Islam. But the Prophet Muhammad, and I personally hold the opinion of, of the majority who say that they, they should. And because the Prophet said in a hadith, he said that invest the wealth of the orphan so it is not consumed by zakah. And so what you get by this hadith is that many times, of course, those who are orphans are young children. And so those young children often are left with money that they've inherited from their parents who have passed away. And so the debate here is whether zakah is an obligation on the wealth or it's an obligation on the person. And if it's an obligation on the wealth, then it doesn't matter whether or not one is at an age of of, of being mukallaf or not. Uh, And and so I, I personally hold the opinion that anybody who has wealth, so if I give my children money in their accounts, they're liable or I'm liable, of course, to pay on their behalf. But at the end of the day, it's still zakatable. And again, this is important because sometimes people use this. And I've, I've dealt with this as an imam where parents will come who have a lot of money and they'll say that I, I put into my child's account, you know, $50,000, my other child's account, $50,000, my other child's account, $50,000. This is for, you know, like their own accounts I've put. And they want to deduct that now. So they're like, oh, well, I have no more money left. And I, I've actually got a case where somebody came and put tens of thousands of dollars into their children's um, walima fund, their marriage fund, and said that after putting all this money into their marriage fund that we don't have any money now. So can we please have some zakat? So you pay on the wealth. Right? Now, I, I want to understand zakat in a broader context. Uh, so uh, we, we and, and it's really, I suppose, part sign of our, our weaknesses in Umar, we see zakat as a, an, an individualistic activity and, and we sometimes begrudgingly, sometimes with, with all openness, we pay this money. But of course, zakah was seen in, in the early days of Islam to be a means to uh, alleviate poverty. And uh, the Prophet والسلام, and the Khulafa Rashidin used to uh, utilize that money to, to deal with some of the systemic uh, poverty issues that existed in, in their society. Is there a role today for zakah in addressing some of the, the the immense inequalities and poverty that we see around us in in our own countries, but also around us in the world. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the Muslims have to. We have to change our mindset over what is zakah. It is really not about simply the individual paying this money to fulfill a religious obligation, uh, and, and that's it. 
right? It's, it's not like um, even just often we think about, you know, salah, right? Salah is something which is an individual obligation. Zakat really transcends to being the societal obligation because of the far-reaching consequences of it. Um, Islam is unique as a way of life that it addresses every single dimension that a human is going needs. It addresses their political needs, their, their social and economic needs, their personal and spiritual needs. And zakat has the ability, as his, history has shown us, to actually eradicate poverty in a society. So I deeply believe, and the, and the numbers support that, right? The, you know, the economic analyses that have been done by Muslim economists, that zakat can actually eliminate poverty in the Muslim world. How can that happen? Well, a couple of things. So number one is that there have been numerous estimates, even in this current age of, of capitalism and, and, and global inequality, that if there was an approximately 4% of a GDP transfer from the wealthy to the poor in a country, and these are in Muslim countries, they've done these studies. So Pakistan is an example. I believe 4% was a number that Muslim economists found. That if 4% of the GDP could get transferred from the rich to the poor, it would eliminate poverty in that, in that country. And then what they did is they did projections of how much wealth is in a society and how much zakah would, would essentially create. And they found that zakah across different Muslim countries should be able to capture about three and a half to about 700% of the GDP, which could then be transferred from the wealthy to the poor. So again, we, just to simplify, if 4% is needed to eradicate poverty, the potential of zakah is about three and a half to seven and a half percent which tells us that it is theoretically possible today in the Muslim world to eliminate poverty in those countries. Now, what is the current state is what we need to understand. These same Muslim economists have gone into these countries, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and other countries, and done the analyses. And this is where we go back to the first thing we said in the podcast is that Muslims are not paying zakah properly, either because of lack of knowledge or because of a lack of will, or because they've bought into capitalism and neoliberal economics, that my wealth is my wealth and I don't want anyone touching my wealth. That the current numbers show that the amount of zakah that's given is less than 1% in every single Muslim country they study. And, and it's not 0.9 or 0.8, it's like 0 0.01, 0 0.02, 0 0.08. So we're not even at like, uh, at, you know, uh, close to a percentage point. Right. We're talking about a tenth of a percent and you need about three and a half to seven or you need about four percent. So it's it's sad because that is the current reality. But our history shows us at least two times when zakat eliminated poverty. One is at the time of Umar bin Khattab and one is at the time of Umar bin Abdul Aziz. And we can unpack those if you want to. But the historical precedent is there and the modern calculations support its possibility. Well, let, let's talk about those examples. I'm I'm fascinated to to understand because often we, I mean, I often come across Muslims who argue that in a modern capitalist, in a modern market economy, zakah would be insufficient in dealing with some of the the gross inequalities and and poverty that exists in 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 society, and and you need to have more advanced forms of taxes um, to, uh, to 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 focus on these. Uh, these endemic problems. Um, can, can you talk us through uh, the the example of Omar bin Khattab and Omar bin Abdul Aziz? Sure. So at the time of Omar bin Khattab, uh, he, at that time, when he assumed the, the role of the, of the Khalifa after the passing of Abu Bakr, Muad ibn Jabal had been sent by the Prophet Muhammad years prior to essentially take charge of the affairs of Yemen. And so 
like Omar had his tax collectors, you know, all over the ummah, the role of those tax collectors was to take money from the poor of that locality and give it to the poor of that locality. And I want to make very clear about that. That zakah was traditionally understood to be about regional poverty uh, alleviation because money is generated in every single town. So money is generated in London, money is generated in Los Angeles, money is generated in Mecca. And so the obligation of the individuals of each town, the wealthy, was to transfer that to the poor of their town. And so Omar bin Khattab was used to seeing his tax collectors collect money in each of their regions and then distribute it back to those regions. And typically there was more poor than there are you know, assets. And so it would be exhausted completely, right? So the zakat gets collected in Yemen, it gets spent in Yemen and nothing comes back to the Khalifa. Money is spent in, again, in anywhere else in Egypt and it's spent in Egypt. So one year, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, he wrote a letter to Umar bin Khattab and he returned a third of the zakat assets. And Umar became very angry. And he said that I did not send you as a tax collector to burden the people, but I asked you to take from their rich and to give it back to their poor. So he was upset that the money was coming into the Medina to be put into Beitul Mal, right, into the, the Muslim treasury. And so Mu'adh, then the next year, he sent back half of it. And Umar bin Khattab became angry again. That what's going on? Why am I getting so much of zakah back? And eventually, the third year, Mu'adh actually sent all of the zakah back. And so it turned out that Mu'adh in Yemen, the, the economy of Yemen and the zakat distribution had been so successful that over this period, so in the first year, right, that they were able to, two-thirds of the zakat eradicated poverty in the region that Mu'adh was sent to, and he returned a, thir- uh, a third of it. The second year, half of the zakat eradicated poverty, right, and half of it was sent back. And by the third year, there was actually no one in any need of zakat in that region anymore, which meant that by the third year, there was absolutely nobody who was in need. So that's one historical precedent we had early in our history. The second came with the time of Omar al Aziz, which was in the year 99 uh, after Hijrah, when he became the Khalifa till 101, that um, the governor in Egypt actually wrote to Omar saying that we have actually exhausted all the, of the you know, there's no more need for zakat in this region. So what do we do? And this is where Omar al Aziz actually said to start buying slaves and freeing them. He said to build rest areas on the highways and even to help the youth get married. So someone would go around the streets yelling, if anybody is in need of getting married and they need money, take it. We have money for you. So that's how you can see that zakat was used for other things after it was primarily used to alleviate the poverty of those towns. So these two are amazing precedents that the Muslim Ummah can learn a lot from. That's, that's really amazing. Jazakallah khair for telling us about, uh, about those two examples. I, I suppose the argument today is that uh, a wealth tax uh, disincentivizes wealth creation. And so there is a, there is a you know, in the West, there is a, a feeling that um, uh, we shouldn't tax wealth. I mean, they, they, the only wealth they tax is, is normally inheritance and, and maybe some property taxes, which my understanding would be that a Sharia wouldn't allow those two types of taxes anyway, because... Uh, because certainly a property tax is is on wealth that you're utilizing rather than on your surplus wealth. Um, what do you think of this argument that it's it's a disincentive um, to have these wealth taxes? I mean, in in the West, uh, most taxation would be income tax and corporation tax and and other forms of taxation like sales taxes. Uh, how would the Sharia view these types of taxes? 
um, in relation to uh, the wealth tax of zakat? Yeah, this is a lot to speak about. Um, first, I, I, the biggest problem that we have in in the modern Western Muslim communities is to, that we have to admit that capitalism and neoclassical economics have seeped deeply into our psyche. And uh, it is so pervasive that the exact same arguments that capitalists, non-Muslim capitalists use, that you see Muslims using as well to push back against efforts to, uh, you know, to transfer wealth from the wealthy to the poor. Uh, if So in, in neoclassical economics, the, the first principle that's there, and even in classical economics that's there, the first principle is that the individual is the owner of the wealth. And this is a premise which is so fallacious from an Islamic perspective. The Muslim does not own his wealth. The Muslim does not own his life. Right? We are simply been given this by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to use of in a very particular. We are the khalifas of Allah. Right? We are in a mustakhlafina fi, as Allah says in the Quran. It is, we are entrusted. We are trustees. And a trustee is not, does not have absolute autonomy to use what he's been entrusted with. It is their job to disperse of it the way that it has been determined in any whatever that contract might be. So in this case of, of a wealth tax or anything else, that it once if the Muslim accepts that this is not my wealth, this is wealth that Allah has given me, this is wealth that is a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that whether or not I'm going to use it properly, am I going to transfer it properly? First of all, that changes the mindset that if it's not mine, then I'm not going to argue as much as to how it's going to be used and distributed. The second thing I want to say is that this notion that the wealth tax will disincentivize labor. I mean, this is, again, it's a very, it's a neoclassical argument, right? It's using the underlying assumptions of how they think that human beings operate with absolute selfishness, with unbounded rationality, right? And these are assumptions that no one believes in. And it's, again, it, these are used as ways to just repel, you know, that, hey, let's not tax people on their wealth. And they'll use these arguments to try and, and show people why it's disadvantage. It's, there's, not advan- there's no advantage to it. There's no strong evidence that taxing someone on a surplus amount of wealth is going to disincentivize labor in any way, shape, or form. It's true that if you are going to tax someone who's got a very small amount of income in a way that's going to drop them below a certain threshold, that that could actually ha- have an effect. So in, in, in the U.S. example that we have is that we have these sliding scales of income where it, and this is these generally operate for the poor, by the way, not for the wealthy. So once the poor hit that point of being just out of poverty, then government incentives stop kicking in. So a wealth tax or some these taxes on the poor can actually disincentivize them to work because then they can collect more money possibly by other, other mechanisms. But for the wealthy, this is absolutely not the case. Do we see that Jeff Bezos or uh, Bill Gates or, or Elon Musk is going to say that I'm going to work less because the government's going to take 1% of my total net worth or 2%. There's no evidence for that. So uh, again, my, my big answer is that we need to stop hiding behind capitalist assumptions of how markets work. I mean, if these, if they had any idea how markets worked, we would not have these global crises every decade or so. And the Muslims have to get out of the mindset of thinking that Western economics is superior to Islamic economics. You know, Sayyid Qutbi said this, this statement I really love when people would come to him with these problems. They'd say, you know, there's this problem in the world. How does Islam solve it? He'd say, don't come to me with this individual problem and tell me the Islamic solution. If you want to know how we should structure society, Islam has a way to fix that. But you want to fix poverty with a capitalist system using some Islamic loophole, like some Islamic you know, premise, it's not going to work. 
right? It's not, it's not that simple. So we really need to tear down, you know, the assumptions and, and the, the core economic foundations and really rebuild them with an Islamic mindset if we want to really understand how Islam will fix these problems in the world. Thank you. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Osman Omraji, and uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you for your knowledge that you've imparted to uh, our listeners today and the work you guys do at the Yaqeen Institute. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.